on the cutting edge of the Messianic movement. Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. Revelation chapter 1 is, is where we are. Now, man, who doesn't like the studies of end times? Anybody I know loves the study of prophecy and end times and things that are to come and what has the Lord revealed to us through the pages of Scripture. So this um, is always an exciting time, I think, as we dive into the Bible to see the things that God has told us in advance, well in advance. And as we begin this Bible study together, and it'll be a long study. I mean, there's 22 chapters to Revelation, and uh, if we take one chapter a week, I mean, do the math, that's 22 weeks, so we're talking almost six months potentially in the book of Revelation, and I think that it's possible that just as we get finished with this on Wednesday nights, by the time we do, on Sunday, we'll be back here to Revelation, which means that um, most of you should be able to teach this in about a year. Um, but it's, it's not a complicated book. It really isn't. I always thought it was until you just kind of take it bit by bit and, um, and digest it slowly. So it's another good reason why we should take this slowly. I will tell you that I am going to teach this, and I don't, I don't mean this to sound in, in any kind of a haughty way, but I'm going to teach this definitively. And what I mean by that is uh, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time saying, now it could mean this or it could mean that or it could mean this and it could mean that, or else we will be here so long, it, Jesus will come before we finish the book, <laughs> which is fine with me. But um, obviously, after having studied this uh, over the years, I have a, a, a personal perspective and a personal viewpoint that, that I'm going to be sharing from. Uh, you are free to study you know, a variety of other interpretations of the book of Revelation. You can go do that on your own. But if I took the time to say, you know, some people think it means this and some people think it means I mean, I might do a little bit of that. But by and large, you're going to hear my personal persuasion, my personal viewpoint, and it's not just mine. I mean, obviously, I'm speaking on behalf of um, what I have gleaned over the years from many uh, brighter and wiser minds than my own. And, and so, obviously, you know, every teacher is going to be sharing from a personal viewpoint or a personal angle. I just challenge you, you know, go do your own homework and, and get out books and, and study guides and lexicons and dig out this book, and you can come to your own conclusion or a similar conclusion, but for the sake of time, I'm, I'm really not going to be juggling a lot of viewpoints. I may refer to that in the course of the study in general, but um, by and large, I'm going to be presenting this, and right off the bat, um, I'll tell you, I'm going to be presenting this from a premillennial, pre-tribulation view. Now, what does that mean? Because we're going to get into the book of Revelation, and we're going to hear terms and terminology that you could choke on. But it's good to understand these things, and, and that's why God's given us his word. Basically, premillennial means that, that um, it's our position here. When I say our, obviously, as the teacher, I'm going to say it's my position here, that, that the church is living prior to the thousand-year, the millennial reign of Christ. That hasn't happened yet. And also, we are living and, um, in the church age prior to the tribulation. Tribulation hasn't happened yet. And I believe that we are raptured. Uh, before the tribulation, which is before the millennial period. So some of this will make more, more sense perhaps as we get into it, but those of you who are familiar with those terms of post-millennial, pre-millennial, or amillennial, we are pre-millennial, 
and we are pre-tribulation rapture of the church, believing that the church gets taken before much of the events that occur, uh, starting particularly in chapter 6. So um, while we are reading here through the book of Revelation, I just kind of wanted to set that framework, um, and uh, we'll dive into this study as best as we can and, and take a chapter or two as, as we can. Um, tonight, I might spend as much time giving the introduction as I do actually getting through chapter 1, but again, laying the foundation is important for our study. So let's just begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll dive into it together tonight. Lord, thank you for this time in your word, and as especially we uh, open up the book of Revelation, we just thank you for just the richness of this book and how it is so full of information and revelation and prophetic things that it's almost overwhelming. But yet you've given us these things that we would have understanding. And so we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself and, and to reveal these things that are to come in advance, that we might know these things and be prepared for these things. And so, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this time together in your word. Reveal yourself in a personal way to each of us tonight. We just thank you for your many blessings and your goodness to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. And everybody said, Amen. So for you note takers, here are a couple of items for you. As far as background on the book goes, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is John the Apostle. One of the original twelve that Jesus chose during his public ministry. It was written sometime around 95 AD, and John has this revelation uh, from uh, his location on the island of Patmos, where he has been banished uh, by the emperor Domitian, um, and, uh, and we'll read why he's been banished there. But Patmos is located in the Aegean Sea. It's one of the Greek islands. And uh, Revelation 1 and verse 1 tells us that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that almost seems like not necessary to say, but I've heard some people refer to this book as the revelation of John. It is not the revelation of John. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. So John receives a revelation, but it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis, where we get our English word apocalypse. And revelation or apocalypsis just simply means unveiling or a revealing. And what we're going to notice through this book in particular, that it is a revelation or an unveiling, like someone has taken the curtain away and shown us to a greater degree who Jesus Christ is. This is the unveiling of Jesus, so much so that throughout the book of Revelation, there are 32 titles or names given concerning Jesus Christ. 32 different titles or names about Jesus. Now, by the way, as we begin this, this study today, um, w- what we're going to try to do by the end of the study is to put together a booklet. Or we'll get our graphics department to put together a booklet of the notes and the slides so that you'll have like a study guide to go. Um, I know many of you will come up to me after the service and say, can we get copies of the slides? And what we'll do is we'll package it all together at the end of the study, so you're free to take notes as we go, but um, just wait till the end of the study, and then we'll have a whole packet together. Now, in regards to Jesus being revealed by 32 different titles or names, nine of those names occur here just in the first chapter. Just in the first chapter. I'm going to read the list. You can follow along as I read it. He's referred to as the faithful witness, chapter 1, verse 5, the firstborn from the dead, also verse 5, the ruler over the kings of the earth, 
verse 5, the Alpha and the Omega, the Greek, the Greek uh, letters, which are the beginning and the ending of the alphabet, verse 8. He's referred to as the one who is, who was, and who is to come, also in verse 8. He's referred to as the Almighty in verse 8. He's referred to as the Son of Man in verse 13. He's referred to as the first and the last in verse 17. And finally, he's referred to as the living one in verse 18. Now, a lot of people struggle with the book of Revelation because it seems overwhelming with the information. And there is a verse given to us in chapter 1 that is actually an outline of the entire book of Revelation. So look real quickly at verse 19 here of chapter 1. And notice, these are the words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, these are in red. And Jesus says this to John in verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Well, there's an outline for the entire book of Revelation. And just by way of breaking it down for us, uh, here's, here's how the outline goes. The first thing that Jesus says is write what you have seen. Now, what John has seen is what we're going to read about in chapter 1, which is the appearance of Jesus. That's the have seen part. And then the rest of that verse in verse 19 says, and also write, what is now? What is now is between chapters 2 and 3, what we refer to as the church age. Between chapters 2 and 3, you're going to see the letters to the seven churches, which are seven real churches that were meeting during the first century in what is ancient Asia Minor, modern-day, present-day Turkey. All seven of these churches were located in Turkey. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. And so he writes about what you have seen. That's chapter 1, the appearance of Jesus. We'll get into, hopefully, tonight. And then he's to write about what is now relative to the church age, and we are living presently in the church age. From the time that Jesus ascended to heaven and handed the baton of ministry off to the church, which was birthed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, until he comes again, that is the church age. So from the time Jesus ascends until he returns is the church age. So we're still living in the church age. And between chapters 2 and 3, we're going to be able to see historically, and in terms of present-day application, where we fit into the timeline of the church age. So we'll get to that next week and following. And then finally, in verse 19, the other part is that he is to write about what will take place later. And that is chapters 4 through 22. Now, most of the time when anybody reads the book of Revelation, they think it's entirely about what will take place later. It's not. Some of what happens in the book of Revelation has already taken place. And we'll see that in the first couple of chapters. But once you get to chapter 4, things dramatically change. And chapter 4 is actually the beginning of the rapture of the church. We'll get into details about it when we get there. And you don't see the church mentioned anymore until you get all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. So from chapters 4 to 22, here's basically the breakdown of those futuristic events. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with the rapture of the church. And when we say rapture, uh, I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows this terminology, so might go a little more slowly to break this down for those of you who aren't familiar with it. But the word rapture is an English word that just means to be seized or snatched up. It is from the Latin word raptus, and uh, we find that word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when it speaks of the rapture or the seizing of the church, when it speaks about how 
we will not all sleep, but, we, but um, um, well, the dead in Christ will rise first, rather. And then after that, those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That word caught up, if you happen to have a Latin Vulgate Bible, you'll see that it's the word raptus, where we get our English word rapture. So the word rapture is nowhere in the English Bible, but it's derived from a term that means, a term that means to be seized up or snatched up. There will be a generation that never dies. There will be a generation of believers that does not experience death because there will be the trumpet sound of God, and that means then that the Christians who are alive on the earth at this uh, predetermined time, known only by the Father, will be actually seized and snatched and taken from the earth. And so it's going to be an incredible, glorious event, but chapter 4 begins that timeline, and then also within chapter 4 and 5, you see the saints kept in heaven while all this other stuff is happening on earth. What else is happening on earth? Well, according to the timeline I've given you there on the slides between chapters 6 and 18, you have the tribulation. It's capital T. We all go through tribulation small t. Jesus said, on this earth you will have tribulation small t, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But there will come a day that is unparalleled, a time for a seven-year period on the face of the earth where there will be tribulation capital T. It'll be broken into two segments. There's going to be a three-and-a-half-year time period followed by another three-and-a-half-year time period. The greatest, most intense part of this tribulation will be the latter three-and-a-half years of this seven-year time. Now, again, from the timeline that I'm presenting to you, chapter 4 is the rapture of the church. I don't believe Christians are here during that tribulation period which breaks out upon the earth. Uh, there will be other scholars who will disagree with that, but uh, be that as it may, that's the way we're, that we're going to present it to you, and I'm going to give you the evidence as best I can from Scripture as to why we hold that position. Chapter 19, then, of course, is uh, Jesus returning after the tribulation period, Battle of Armageddon at the end of that seven-year tribulation period. Jesus returns, and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. That's chapter 20, the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign on earth. It will be a glorious time. It'll be the time, finally, when true peace reigns upon the earth. You know how Miss America always wishes during the question por portion of the competition for peace on earth, goodwill to men? Ain't going to happen. The only time we're really going to have true peace on earth is when the Prince of Peace comes. And when Satan is bound for that thousand-year period, Jesus ruling on the earth, the saints ruling with him, and so that'll transpire after the tribulation period. And then following that thousand-year period of Jesus reigning on earth from uh, chapters 21 to 22, we have a description of the new heaven and new earth. Because the Bible says that this present earth and the present heaven will be destroyed by fire. Talk about global warming. And then um, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I told you on Sunday I didn't want to hear those words again in the English vocabulary. And, and there I just used it. So anyhow, uh, there you have the basic outline. Most of Revelation, with a few exceptions, is chronological. The, the problem for us Westerners is we don't know where the timeline kind of begins. It's kind of like someone once explained it to me like this. It's like stepping into an art gallery and that's in the round. And, you know, and then the, the pictures are displayed for you in, in a circular fashion. And kind of as Revelation unveils, as the revelation of Jesus Christ, the curtain is pulled back. We see this circular picture of things. We don't often know where does all this stuff begin. 
But by and large, if you find the beginning point, it does pretty much follow chronologically, with a few exceptions. There are three generally accepted methods of interpretation concerning this book of Revelation. The three methods are allegorical, historical, and then lastly, literal, and I put slash futuristic, because the literal interpretation is that most of these events happen in the future. Now, that's the one from which we will be presenting the book of Revelation, the third one, the literal futuristic view. Uh, I'll give you just real quickly, again, you won't be able to write this down quick enough, but just, just so that we understand these different viewpoints, the, the allegorical viewpoint basically says this, that everything in the book of Revelation is about symbolism, good versus evil, paganism versus Christianity, and the ultimate triumph of Christ in our lives. The book is seen as a spiritual allegory for the comfort and encouragement of the church, denying prophecies of literal future events. I reject this viewpoint, but that is one, that this is entirely a, a symbolic book. It symbolizes you know, all of this stuff allegorically, the, 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 the competition and contrast between good and evil and, and the conflict that ensues and all of that. This is all symbolic, hopefully, to encourage the church and, and it denies uh, the prophetic element of the book of Revelation. There's another viewpoint of this book, and that is historical. And there's really two kinds of historical viewpoints, not to clutter your mind even more with this, but, but let me just give you the two historical viewpoints. The one is what we call the preterist view. The preterist view deals with church history that includes only the early church's struggle against imperial Rome. This is somewhat similar to the allegorical method of a symbolic rather than prophetic view. Basically, those who hold to a preterist view believe that the book of Revelation was really a detail about the struggle of the church during the Roman Empire and only during the Roman Empire. And that, you know, the classic Antichrist is Nero and the persecution of Christians, which did happen, especially under Nero's hand, uh, is what Revelation captures. So they kind of, the preterist view kind of sees it again as an historical thing, kind of allegorical, symbolic to encourage us, but really these events, they would say, happened uh, historically during the Roman Empire. The, the other van angle of the historical view is what I, I would just call the total view, the total historic view, which basically says that it considers all of church history beyond the Roman Empire to today, culminating in the second coming, a symbolic interpretation of the church's struggle against the world system. So this view, while also leaning in the historical vantage point, says that, no, it's not restricted just to the Roman Empire. This is a book that deals with all of church history throughout the ages, culminating in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, this historical viewpoint then either believes that the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, any of the historical viewpoints, whether we're talking the preterist view or this total view, the historical viewpoint of the book of Revelation it has a post-millennial or an amillennial view of um, the thousand-year reign of Christ. What do I mean? What I mean is that the historical viewpoint says that the thousand-year reign of Christ either has already occurred, when, I don't know, or is occurring now, that we're in the millennial period of time, the thousand-year reign. Now, I got a couple of problems with that, a couple of big problems, one of which is the Bible says that during the thousand years, Satan is bound. So if we're living right now in the thousand-year reign, then supposedly Satan is bound. Last time I turned on my TV, Satan is alive and well. 
So I, I reject this viewpoint as well. But again, you, you can uh, do your homework and decide you want to believe the historical viewpoint and be wrong too. I don't care. But, uh, but anyhow, but, the, but then the literal futuristic viewpoint is, is where I lean and, um, and many church uh, scholars do. And, and that basically says this, that the events beginning in chapter 4, verse 1 are futuristic and following. Frequent symbolism is recognized. But events will be fulfilled in a literal way. There are differences within this view as to the timing of the rapture of the church. So we do make allowances. There are good, godly brothers and sisters in the Lord who believe that you go through the tribulation or who believe that you get raptured halfway in the tribulation period. So, you know, we can uh, agree to disagree on some of those things. Those aren't salvation issues, you know, especially as it relates to the, to the, uh, the rapture of the church. I mean, when the trumpet sound is given, uh, the church is going to go. And nobody's going to care about their theology at that point, you know. I mean, it's pre, post, or mid. What are you? Well, it, it's happening, so let's just go. So um, that's the way it's going to be. So uh, with that said, let's take a look here into chapter 1 this evening. Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Again, it's the revelation, the apocalypsis, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So again, this is the Apostle John. Now, by this time, uh, in AD 95, he is, he's got to be in his upper 90s. He's got to be pushing 100 years of age. So, I mean, this is... Uh, very unusual for someone in the first century to be living this long, um, but he is. He's been banished to the island of Patmos. He's going to tell us in just a little bit because of uh, Domitian's uh, sentence, kind of like a, um, a punishment camp. And, he's, and he testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So there's a blessing right at the beginning of this book. There's a blessing for me because um, I'm reading it. There's a blessing for you because you're hearing it. That's what it says right here. Blessed is the one who reads the words. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. It's interesting to note that the book of Revelation begins with a blessing and ends with a curse. Jump to chapter 22. Let me just show you real quickly. Chapter 22, last chapter of the book, and it's the only book of the Bible that is written in in such a way, with a blessing at the beginning and a curse at the end. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Now, you haven't even had the Bible study yet, and already you know this is not good, right? And, verse 19, if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So, some pretty sobering words to end this book on, but let's go back to chapter 1 now, because some pretty encouraging things that he begins with by letting us know, hey, you're going to be blessed because you're part of this Bible study. You're going to be blessed because you're hearing, you're reading, you're studying this book together. And so in verse 4, John introduces himself, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, the word seven 
Uh, if you do any study of numerology and you know, a study of the significance of numbers, um, seven in, in the Hebrew uh, um, language and in numerology indicates perfection or completion. The, the number seven is used more than 50 times through the book of Revelation. And it's written to the seven churches, and the word church is used 19 times in the first three chapters, and then you don't see the church again until chapter 22, verse 16, another piece of evidence that the church has been raptured, taken from the earth. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 4. But a lot of emphasis on the church, first couple of chapters. And again, these churches are located in the province of Asia, which is uh, Asia Minor. We're talking the the, uh, modern-day country of Turkey. And it says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So again, several titles of Jesus in there, uh, the one who is and who was and who is to come, uh, Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, what does it mean there in verse 4 when it says, and from the seven spirits before his throne? Uh, Some have interpreted this to mean the sevenfold a virtue of the Spirit of God, which could be possible. Uh, Isaiah 11 and verse 2 speaks about the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's plausible. I think it probably is a reference, however, to the angels. It's, a, it's spirits, small s, seven spirits before the throne. If you'll jump quickly to chapter 8 and look at verse 2, I'll show you why that's possible because it tells us that seven angels are around the throne of God in chapter 8 and verse 2. And John says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So if chapter 8 tells us that there are seven angels who stand before God, then you go back here to chapter 1, trying to figure out what he means by seven spirits before the throne, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, which is always the best commentary in your Bibles, is to compare Scripture with Scripture, then it probably is a reference to these seven angels, seven spirits before the throne of God. And so in the rest of uh, verse 5, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And everybody said, Amen. Now notice again that he loves us. He begins, you know, this is a heavy book, and it's, it can, it, it, on face value, it can be interpreted with a lot of doom and gloom, but, but he's going to lead into all of this terrible stuff by reminding us of this, that God loves us, that he loves us, and that he has freed us from our sin. And how? By his blood. And we just partook uh, of communion tonight, and, you know, just that symbol of the blood and the reminder of the broken body, that Jesus died on the cross, and so this is going to be his final wake-up call to a lost and dying world that rejects him. I don't want anybody to look at the book of Revelation and think, this is some kind of sadistic thing where God is raining down fire and havoc upon the earth, and, you know, isn't this cruel? Look, many of us can testify to the fact that the only time we finally came to respond to Jesus was through difficulty and hardship. That We were too stubborn to hear of his love for us and of his goodness and his grace and his kindness it took a crisis, it took difficulty, it took some kind of a, of a brokenness in our lives until we finally came to the place of surrender to Jesus. And for those who are forsaking him and rejecting him, 
This is God's final wake-up call to the earth. So even though it looks intense, and it is, you have to bear in mind that the tribulation that happens on the earth is so that people might finally get saved before the end of the age. Because once the age is over, there will be no more salvation. It's done. It's finished. And we spend all eternity with God. And so he wants as many to be saved as possible. And for that last holdout of people who were just too stubborn to receive it and believe in him, he is going to have a dynamic laser light show so that people can finally wake up and know that he is God. Now, unfortunately, Revelation tells us that even still many will reject him, that many will not believe in him, that they will not accept him. And that's, that's tragic. But he's going to do everything he can, even to the point of, we'll see when we get into this study, that he dispatches an angel who proclaims the gospel around the world, flying in the air, just proclaiming the gospel. You will not be able to say people didn't know and people didn't have a choice. That God even dispatches an angel to preach the gospel, the Bible says, while flying around in the air around the world so that every person can hear and can know. And so when we look into this and we see all the things that happen in you know a very intense way, know this from the beginning, that God loves us and he has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Now that's uh, speaking of the kingdom age. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. That we will be a kingdom of priests and, and administrators, if you will, to serve the Lord. I do believe personally that the Jews will be the ones to be the priesthood in the temple that will be rebuilt, and um, the Jewish believers. And then uh, for the rest of the Gentile believers, we will help in, in administering justice because the Bible says that, don't you know, that we will judge the world. So that's to come when it speaks here of a kingdom and priest to serve as God forever and ever. And then in verse 7, he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. And everybody said, Amen. All right, so verse 7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds. Um, you don't need to turn there, if you can, if you want. But let me find a Daniel 7. And verse 13, or you can write that in the margin of your Bible, Daniel 7, verse 13. Listen to what Daniel prophesies. <clears throat> in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Sound familiar? He says, in his vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now compare it with chapter 1, verse 7 of Revelation. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Uh, there are more than 300 Old Testament passages that are incorporated in the book of Revelation, more than 300. Most of them are not quoted separately. They are integrated within the whole book, so you don't always know when you're reading something that has already been given to us from an Old Testament prophecy. But there are 79 prophecies taken from the book of Isaiah, and there are 53 taken from the book of Daniel, just to name a few of the 300. And this is one of them taken from the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel saw this vision. Look, he, the Messiah, Christ, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Now, yes, he will come in the air, but this is speaking of his second coming. And when it says here he is coming with the clouds, the word with is meta in the Greek. It doesn't say he comes in the clouds. He says he comes with the clouds. Why is this important? Because I don't believe that it speaks here of clouds in the sky 
This is a term that refers to the saints. For example, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. It wasn't speaking of, you know, something in, in, in the atmosphere. It was speaking of a group of people, a throng of people. Cloud of witnesses refers to people. We also know from 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 13, it says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. That speaks of the saints because those who have already died to go to be with the Lord or those who have been raptured and are with the Lord at that time will come back with him. So when Jesus comes, he comes with the clouds, a term that probably refers to the saints surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and then every eye will see him. Now, this is not the rapture. This is when he comes after rapture, after tribulation, with the saints, when he comes back to the earth to rule for a thousand years. John is just getting a glimpse of this, and he's seeing the whole picture of Jesus' second coming to the earth, and he says when he comes, he comes with the clouds or with the saints, and every eye will see him. Everybody will notice and see. It's going to be a miraculous moment when everybody around the earth will see the return of the Lord Jesus And even those, reading again from verse 7, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Very similar to what we read in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Here's what it says. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. This is the Lord speaking. The one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So again, prophecy incorporated in the text here of Revelation chapter 1. When Jesus returns, in particular the Jews who have pierced him, Zechariah is addressing there in Zechariah 12, they're going to look upon Jesus. They're going to see the marks of his crucifixion. And Zechariah also tells us, I didn't read it, but it also tells us that they will ask him, where did you receive these marks? And he will respond, he will say, I received them in the house of my friend. That there's going to be this moment when the Jews who did not believe that Jesus was Messiah, who survived the tribulation period, will see Jesus in the second coming, notice the piercings, recognize that he actually is Messiah, and so all Israel will be saved, is what the book of Romans tells us. So they will have to go through the tribulation. The Bible says that two-thirds will perish. Two-thirds of the Jews will perish during the tribulation period. But that third that comes out refined by the fire, who believe in Jesus, will then see him for who he truly is. They will put their faith and trust in him, and so all Israel will be saved. But there will be deep mourning. Can you imagine that, you know, the, um, the, the, the denial of Jesus for centuries and centuries, for a couple of millennia now, and then being confronted with him and seeing the marks of his crucifixion, just the conviction having denied and then he stands before you in great power and majesty with the marks of his crucifixion and there will be great mourning because people will be broken in their hearts over the sight of jesus bearing the marks of his crucifixion so in verse 8 jesus says i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who is and who was and who is to come the almighty i john your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now notice he says here, your brother, brother in the Lord, companion in the suffering. Now that's interesting because John, along with his brother James, remember they went to Jesus and, and they, 
And one of the Gospels says their mommy went with them too, asking Jesus if her little boys could sit on his right and on his left when he came into his kingdom. Remember that? And so, you know, here they are, and mommy's trying to, you know, do their bidding. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can drink it. And he goes, no, you don't, you don't understand. And, and then in the end, though, he confirms that you shall drink this cup, but he speaks of a suffering. Now, James, the one brother, is the first martyr of the church. He dies in Acts chapter 12. He's the first apostle who was killed, who was martyred. Um, and um, Terry was doing like a little homeschool lesson with uh, Lindsay a couple, uh, um, well, last year, I guess it was, and talking about being martyred and uh, what that means. And Lindsay said, martyred. And yeah, Terry goes, yeah, martyred. And Lindsay says, well, you say martyr, I say murder. Tomato, tomato. We had to explain to her, no, 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 actually, there's a separate kind of murder called martyr. But anyhow, um, James is martyred by the sword. He's beheaded, Acts chapter 12, by Herod Agrippa I. He's the first to die. John, his brother, is the last to die. And he is banished here on the island of Patmos. And why is he banished? He says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was going around preaching the gospel. And it landed him in a prison camp. He got thrown on this deserted island with just, you know, hauling rocks. And he's an old man. And, and here he is banished to this island because of his stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's the last surviving of the apostles. So it's interesting, the two brothers, the, James dies as the first. John's going to die as the last. They both experience their share of suffering. And uh, for, for John, it's here on the island of Patmos. And he says in verse 10, on, it was on the Lord's day, meaning this is Sunday now, because the Lord's day was commonly referred to as Sunday or Sunday, the Lord's day, ever since Jesus rose from the dead, that they commemorated his resurrection continually on a Sunday. And so though, yes, the Jewish Sabbath is still Saturday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, that the Lord's day and the, and the traditional day of worship since the resurrection of Jesus has been continually on Sunday since the early church. And he says, it was on the Lord's day, it was on a Sunday, and I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, he says, I was in the spirit. Actually, the article the is not in the original language, so it can be more literally read, I was in spirit. And what he is speaking of here is that he actually, in some um, marvelous, miraculous way that we don't understand, he doesn't give us great detail about, was actually taken in his spirit, to the very presence of the Lord where he beholds this grand vision that is about to unfold here. This is more than just he had a dream. You know, he's an old guy hauling rocks who had a nap, and he came up with this. That he actually was taken in spirit and, and, and uh, transported spiritually in the presence of God to behold this. And the first thing is not what he sees, but what he hears. And what he hears behind him is a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, when we read in Thessalonians about the trumpet call of God for the rapture of the church, it's probably not a literal trumpet. It is probably the voice of God that sounds like a trumpet. Because here is the voice of God saying, verse 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, those are the seven churches that we'll read about in chapters 2 and 3. Verse 12 says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, circle that word lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Let me just read further and then we'll come back. 
His head was, uh, and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, capture this scene here. John hears a voice like a trumpet behind him. He turns around, and when he turned around, he saw seven golden lampstands. Now, the lampstands are otherwise known as menorahs. We're talking the Jewish lampstands. Now, this is a menorah. This is a tiny one, obviously, but this is a menorah, seven-branch candle, candelabra. And, um, and he sees seven golden ones of these. And the lampstands are, are going to be defined for us in verse 20 as the churches. Uh, we'll see it in a moment. But the lampstands represent these seven churches, okay? And he says in verse 13, Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That's a title for Jesus. Uh, Daniel uses that title in, in his uh, prophetic book related to Messiah. It is the most often term that Jesus uses about himself in the Gospels. It's not the most often term in the book of Revelation about Jesus. The most used of Jesus is the word lamb in the book of Revelation. But son of man was the one that was most often used by Jesus and about Jesus in the Gospels. It's a prophetic term. And here he comes in this great appearance. Now, this is his second coming, okay? First coming when Jesus first came to the earth, meek and mild, born in a, in a, you know, in a humble abode in, in a manger. Um, second coming of Jesus with fire, with passion, with majesty. Verse 13, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Right in the margin of your Bible, majesty. There's going to be four characteristics here of our Lord. The first one is very majestic. He comes looking very majestic. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. White in scripture, and when it speaks of the reference related to like wool and snow, it's a reference to purity. Remember Isaiah, come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So it's speaking about the cleansing work. So he comes in majesty, he comes in purity, and he comes with authority because it says, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Bronze is often a symbol of judgment. So here he comes in all of his glory, majesty, purity, authority. Rest of verse 15, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. On his right hand, he held seven stars. And we're going to see that stars is a, a word that is uh, translated messenger. And in the in scripture, it's translated as the word angels, but it may not necessarily mean literally angels. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So there you have glory shining in all his brilliance. So you have majesty, purity, authority, and glory. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, he's not slain in the spirit here, okay? Um, and I know, you know, some people have experienced that, and, and that's their own um, experience. You can't find that experience in Scripture. The only times people get knocked over by the spirit are the enemies of God. You see that happening when Paul is knocked down, uh, when he's still an enemy of God. You see that when the Roman soldiers get knocked down, when they try to arrest Jesus, they're the enemies of God. The only believers you see slain in the Spirit were Ananias and Sapphira, and that's a whole different kind of slain in the Spirit, because they were killed. He falls at his feet. This is in worship, as though dead, because this is a, a posture of complete surrender, humility, and worship. He is beside himself. He is in, in a position of... Uh, he is. 
He has um, uh, prostrated himself in a position of complete surrender and uh, yielding in his devotion to the Lord. And then it says that he placed his right hand on me, Jesus did, and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. And it defines it for us. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So lampstands are the churches. Clearly, some of your Bibles has a footnote by angels because agalos translates literally messengers. Messengers don't have to be angelic creatures. And when we get into the study next week into chapters 2 and 3, each of the seven letters are addressed to the angels of those churches, but there's nowhere in Scripture where angels are ever entrusted with the supervision or oversight of a church. So it literally is referring to, again, by all um, best of interpretations, is that the messenger is really a reference to the pastors of each of these local churches. So when you consider here that Jesus is saying that, the, that he is walking among the lampstands, he walks among the churches, and he holds in his hand the messengers, the one who deliver the gospel, or the pastors of these churches, how comforting to know that he walks in our midst and that he holds pastors in the palm of his hand as he leads his church. Amen? Well, that's where we'll end for tonight. We'll pick up chapter 2, Lord willing, next week. So read ahead as we dive into the seven letters to the seven churches. Let's have a word of prayer. Do you all survive the first week? You're doing well. You're doing good. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we just uh, give you praise for revealing yourself through the pages of Scripture in such detail, in such um, relevant, that you loved us and freed us from our sins. Thank you, Lord, for washing over our sins and cleansing us dying on the cross, freeing us from our sin. And you have given us this revelation that we might know more of you and the things that are to come. So Lord, find us faithful, find us ready as we await your return, and as we long to hear the sound of the trumpet call of God calling us home. And we love you and we praise you together for this time in your word this evening. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Thanks for stopping by the Solace Radio community and our new YouTube channel, Subscribe to our channel. Share the teaching with friends. Hit the like button. Do all the regular stuff. It helps us rise in the YouTube universe, enabling us to reach those who need comfort and solace. Comment too. We read all comments from the community and try and answer them in at least 24 hours. Once again, thank you for listening to the word. We pray you are blessed by the teaching you just heard. If so, check out the links in the description for more info. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio.